Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another installment of Two Legs. We are a Paul McCartney podcast. This is episode 188. We are a mainly a Paul McCartney solo podcast that features the solo career of just Paul McCartney with occasional dabbles into other things like a group that he was in called the Beatles, but mostly <laughs> solo Paul. And uh, joining me today is my co-host and Two Legs founder, Mr. Tom Hunyadi. You might know Tom from his other talk show, Talk More Talk, that he does with Ken Michaels, Kid O'Toole, and Joe Mayo. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great, and uh, thank you, Andy, and it's good to see you again. And, and we're finally uh, getting close to the release of this amazing book. Uh, getting which, you closer. Know, sir, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as Carly Simon once sang, anticipation, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's um, but uh, fortunately, we were fortunate to uh, to have the authors, yep, uh, we, Adrian Sinclair and, and Alan Cozen on. Yep. Yeah, we had Adrian Sinclair and uh, Alan Cozen on, and we've had them on our show before. They are the authors of The McCartney Legacy, and uh, we, inter- we interviewed them a while back. And uh, we're here. We have a nice two-hour episode conversation with them that we recorded with them uh, a few weeks back. And it was great. Uh, kind of the history of the book writing uh how long they've been working on it why mm-hmm. they chose to focus the years that they chose so we had a really really great conversation and it, one that we've really really been working on and um getting ready right. for for since the book was announced we wanted this tom and i were totally all in on this we wanted to get these guys and they were so great and uh, really hoping that uh, you guys will enjoy the interview that we did with them and we're back. Hello, everybody. Andy, this is a moment we've been waiting for for a long time. And I'm sure uh, these two gentlemen have been waiting for this uh, for a long time as well. Uh, you know, last year it got postponed because of, because of a career-spanning book. And then thankfully it didn't get uh, delayed this year because of a career-spanning singles box set. But uh, that's, <laughs> that's another story. But uh, we have with us the two authors of the highly anticipated McCartney bio, solo bio, I should say, which is, you know, a breath of fresh air. Finally, we're getting some two people that are taking the time, doing the research, making sacrifices and doing whatever it takes to make sure that we have the ultimate Paul McCartney bio. And we've got Adrian Sinclair and Alan Cozen with us to talk about the McCartney legacy Volume 1, 1969 to 1973. Gentlemen, hello, and welcome back to the show. Hey, Tom. Hey, Andy. Hey, guys. Good to be back. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for yeah, coming. Yeah, it's great. It, Go ahead, uh, Andy. The, the end of a long journey and uh, some, what, 10 years in the way or close to it? Eight years, I'd say. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah but Eight, I, well, yeah, but a little bit beyond that. But yeah, eight years. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a lot of time, you could say. Yeah. Wow, time flies well, when you're having fun. It, yeah, I, I would hope it was fun. <laughs> um, but uh, eight years is a long time. But Adrian, let's start with you. Um, you know, just the brainchild. I mean, was this your brainchild? I mean, this was your thought to get a a true, uh, you know, Paul McCartney solo bio out there in the world. Well, it's interesting that the book actually evolved over the time we were making it. So when we when we started working on the book, it was it was mainly going to be um, like a, a dedicated 
uh, look at Paul's sessionography. So more like mm. Mark Lewison's uh, complete Beatles recording sessions, but for Paul, okay. you know, all the way through his career. But what we quickly discovered was that you, you can't separate Paul's life from his art. It's impossible. The two are so interconnected and intertwined. And to really understand the man and understand his music, you have to tell the whole story. Um, mm. So, yeah, that's what we decided to do. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, when, when we were pitching this to um, publishers, you know, we, we went through the books on our shelves to see what's mm. the most amount that anybody's ever written about this period. And it was probably someone like Tom Doyle, you know, his book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, and as I say, the, the, the whole project really evolved over a period of two or three years. Um, at the beginning, we had Chip Madiga involved as well, yep. um, mm -hmm. because we were working on it as a sessionography. Um, and when the project started to evolve into more of a biog, um, me and Alan basically went off and we just did it on our own because, you know, just mm -hmm. Chip said it wasn't really his bag. So uh, it became a team man project from there on. Um, gotcha. But yeah, I've always I've always said for, for me, the pivotal moment in this project was in 2016 when I was in. Well, we did a, a series of interviews with Denny Sywell. Um, mm. I was having a conversation with him and Alan had already spoken to him uh, and we got to the end of this chat. And, and Denny said to me, um, you know, when I was in Wings, my wife, Monique, used to keep these little diaries. Um, is that something that would be of interest to you? And as a researcher, you know, your eyes light up yeah. and you think, well, I wonder what we're going to find out from, from diary. <laughs> and, uh, you know, D Denny, Denny and Monique were so incredibly uh, generous to open up that chapter of their lives to us because, you know, you know how the, the saga ends for Denny Sywell, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know. And, um, but for him, it was probably, you know, the, the most colourful period of his life, which maybe didn't end in the way that he wanted it to end. And that right. would be the same said for Paul. Um, but anyway, Den Denny and Monique, over a period of, um, I don't know how many hours we spent on Skype, uh, went through and, and, and told us all of this stuff that was going on uh, wow. over a period of four years. Uh, so in, in a way, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it, it felt like it was almost our obligation to do something with that information. Uh, mm -hmm. And really, the McCartney Legacy Volume One um, that formed a, a big backbone of the book. You know, it's not to say mm -hmm. that I know the research in the book because there's about thirty thousand sources for the book. Right. Uh, so there's a lot. <laughs> a lot went into it. Um, but that for us really gave us um, an undisputed timeline for everything that happened over that period that of four period years. Of yeah, four years. Yeah. yeah. Um, gotcha. I mean. So, uh, so yeah, so that's how the, the project kind of evolved um, over, like I say, a period of two, three years. Mm -hmm. right. What I find um, is fascinating is, um, you know, the, 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 you mentioned with the, the journals and the diaries from the Sywells, <laughs> is that Denny Sywell, in most Beatle biographies, is no more than a footnote, you know, a passing member for mm -hmm. like two years. And, you know, that this work and this book, and thanks to with the journals, really kind of brings his time in the band really a full colorful period from beginning to end um going back to you know when he started playing with Ram, on ram so seeing all the attention and to his period with paul in this book is uh, something i'm, I'm really I've, I've enjoyed reading throughout the whole book he's an amazing he's an amazing guy danny amazing yeah. and uh you know i've always said to everybody we speak to really it is that they're almost like the kingmakers you know, they they were there. They're, they're like the supporting cast behind 
behind Paul. He was obviously the central figure, former beat. Right. Um, but without these guys, none of this would have happened. And mm. um, and and yeah, De- Denny was not only an incredible drummer, but um, but so central to to what happened from October 1970 to the the day that he departed you know mm. just before the lagos sessions you know he was always there mm. and and him and him and paul had such a great relationship as well and i really hope that that comes through in the book you know there are some highs and lows but those two guys had a real connection you know they connected musically right. they connected personally um and um you know, we we explore also in the book how um, Hugh McCracken nearly became a member of the band mm-hmm. in right. uh, in in the summer of uh, 1971. Right. Um, so yeah, it's interesting to think how history might have panned out had Hugh McCracken joined the band and they'd yeah. become awesome that way. Yeah, right. Very yeah. different temperament um, than um, than um, Henry McCulloch. You know, it, right, very much so. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it might not have lasted even as long as it did with, with Henry because Hugh, like Denny, was a very busy session player. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and some of Denny's frustrations that come through in the book were sort of the financial arrangement that Paul had with Wings, which is that um, when the group started, uh, the idea was that it would be, you know, we're all in this group. We all own right. this group. We'll all benefit equally and and all of that. But Paul's money's tied up in Apple. So, right. um, it, it, you know, arrangements had to be made. And so he paid them a salary. And that ultimately became very frustrating as it went on from year to year. Mm-hmm. Uh, who knows whether Hugh would have lasted through that as long as Denny when he had such right. a thriving freelance career as 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 Danny did too, the two of right. them may have just gone off, you know, very quickly. Mm-hmm. If, if uh, so, we, you know, we, there's no no telling what would have happened, but it would have been an interesting group, that's for sure. Absolutely, yeah. Well, we'll get more into that in a little bit. But did you guys go through past bios, you know, books uh, to for for research? Obviously, there's bits and pieces. I mean, you you had to have you know, read past bios if you wanted to do this. I mean, what were, Alan, what were some of your thoughts on, on other books on McCartney in the past? Um, well, I've read, you know, I've read quite a few of them. And during the, well, when we started, our our, our idea basically was that um, his solo career had not been looked at with the sort of, you know, granular depth um, that his career in the Beatles had been looked at. So even mm. if you have a, a solo McCartney bio, like Philip Norman say, which is you know, this mm-hmm. thick, uh, it's his whole life. And, you know, half of it yeah. maybe is, is the solo years. And that's all the solo years up to the time the book was published. Um, so the kind of detail that we've gotten into no one has. I mean, the closest is, as Adrian said, Tom Doyle, yeah. uh, his book Man on the Run. But that book is only about this thick, yeah. and it's up to 1980. So even there. Uh, otherwise, the only reason I really looked at things, not so much for research, because we were doing the research fresh. Um, we knew the story because we'd read those books. Mm-hmm. So the only only reason I really looked in some of these books while writing 
was to make sure I wasn't saying the same thing in the same way. You know, you're, right. you're sort of conscious of um, if you, you've read something, you don't want it sort of coming out into your own work, uh, you know, and it'll look like you've, you've copied it. So, you know, in, in, in a number of cases, um, I'll, I or, or Adrian will have written a, a section and I'll go back into the past books to look at that period and, and mm. just make sure that ours isn't like that. So, right. so just in practical terms. Um, but, you know, we also read them all, I think, because, you know, it's our, it's our field, so to speak. And, you know, mm. you want to be informed on what people are writing. And, uh, and so we do keep up with it. Right. Even as books continue to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Adrian. Um, I think we talked a little bit about Luca Prazzi's book. Um, you know, the recording sessions book. I mean, was that kind of like a reference for you guys as well? Yeah, I mean, Luca's books. Luca's books incredible. Um, mm -hmm. And I believe that his uh, he's updated that book since in Italian, and it will be coming out in mm -hmm. English. Um, oh, yeah, uh, but but really, in terms of uh, the research that we were doing, we we did it from the ground up, really. So we tried not right. to um steer too much towards what anybody else was doing and really try to do our right. own thing gotcha cool and yeah i'm looking for i'm looking forward to reading uh, lucas updated uh, book because his yeah. first book was so good right. i believe that he's he's put a lot of extra information into, into his updated version so i'm guessing that'll be coming out maybe sometime next year hopefully yeah i mean it went up to 2013 so there'll be a lot more of information in an updated mm -hmm. uh, volume of, of course mm -hmm. and that'll be welcome mm -hmm. um can you guys talk a little bit about your research methods and approaches um where you got your primary sources i mean how many trips did adrian did you spend to the british library and things like uh, that and somebody yeah. who's done some research as myself i'm very interested in that process and you know and how you did went about that yeah, I'm, I'm I'm quite lucky where I live, in, and, and I didn't even know this when I moved here. So I moved to where I lived 12 years ago, and uh, the British Library, uh, most of their main storage is seven miles from my house, and they actually have a reading room there. Right. So I thought I'd have to go down to London and uh, do all of my research down there, but I live in Yorkshire. Uh, so I was able to drive 10 minutes from my house and be sitting in the British Library within 15 wow. minutes. So I'm quite lucky in that respect. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we spent months and months following trails of breadcrumbs uh, in the British Library. Uh, you know, things like the university tour was brilliant, mm -hmm. you know, because if there's a beetle in town, he makes the press. It's as simple as that. Um, so, you know, we already had a lot of information from places like, you know, the universities, all of their kind of internal campus newsletters they would have covered uh you know the fact that wings played a concert maybe it was a week or two after the event because they were told not to be uh too upfront with their coverage of it <laughs> uh, even though some of them were um and uh yeah so um so yeah we, we we'd look through all of the you know uni university newspapers all of the local newspapers the national coverage uh then there would be coverage in the music press so by the time you get to the end of that process for the something like the university tour, you've got maybe 100, 150 news clippings just for one period of time that you then process into what you read in the book, basically. All of those little uh, vignettes or those little stories that you read in the book, they're all plucked straight out of um, first-hand reports that, were, that right. happened at the time. Um, but strangely, in, in, in certain periods, there was very little coverage of, of Paul and Linda in town. 
uh, Lagos, for example. Um, mm. You know, we're pretty certain that Paul had an agreement over there, which was let's keep a low profile. We don't want to raise, uh, you know, um, bring any attention upon ourselves in Lagos. So we'll keep a low profile. And um, therefore, the first couple of weeks they were in Lagos, there was nothing in the papers at all. Nothing, not a mention. Uh, and then um, you get to the night where Paul goes to the shrine to see fellow Ransom Cutie. Uh, and then everything just kind of exploded from that point onwards, really. Um, mm. But yeah, if a Beatles in town, then he makes the press. You know, and another great one was the uh, Scotland, the summer of 1970. Paul and Linda, we know because it was in the Life magazine spread, went to the Shetland Islands and the Orkneys. And there's the famous story about them taking a boat trip. Um, mm -hmm. So I pulled out every newspaper from the whole of the north of Scotland and lo and behold they're not just popping up on one coast they're over here as well so right. the, you pull um, all these stories together and you've got this kind yeah. of trail of paul and linda's land rover you know driving right. all the way through <laughs> through yeah. the uh you know the north of scotland over a period of two weeks um so yeah you end up with this i think really colorful story of how paul's music is informed by his travels you know so i mean we're pretty certain that Admiral Halsey was probably named originally for the skipper of the boat that they went on to the Orkney right. Islands. I think it was called the Enterprise or something, wasn't it? And mm. and in the end, he's one of those guys. He doesn't he doesn't want to plant um, a figure anybody knows in his story. So what does he do? He plucks a name off a <laughs> um, a film billboard instead. You know, he sees mm. the Tora 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 film and he goes, oh, Admiral Halsey will have that instead. You know, that'll replace <laughs> the name of the actual right. skipper. So you end up with this really colourful, colourful tale of, um, you know, Paul and Linda's travels that summer and how that came to form the Ram album. And, and you can hear it on the record. It's a really right. kind of pastoral, you know, record that I mean, me and Alan often refer to it as Paul's Scottish record, you know, because it's it was written in Scotland. And, you know, yeah, That's Adrian, one of the Adrian neglected to mention that when, you know, he's not just we're not just getting these stories about the university tour from the university papers, Adrian tracked down uh, various of the people who wrote the stories or are mentioned in the stories or were there, you know, students right. who saw Paul at the time. So, you know, Adrian sort of, you know, found them and interviewed them. So we have, you know, their, their later perspective on it too. And, um, so, so there's that. I, I just, you know, Adrian can be very modest about what he does and, uh, <laughs> wanted to add that extra bit. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, Alan, a quick question for you. Can you explain, and I, I love the explanation in the book, but for our audience, the, the um, you know, writing the book without the foreknowledge aspect, which I thought was a, a wonderful touch and an explanation and approach to write the book. And I think it was a great idea. Can you kind of go into that a little bit in detail and why you chose to do it that way? <laughs> that was my that was my fault. Yeah, yeah, it was, <laughs> he was thrust was, upon. Adrian him. really wanted to do, and also when when Chip was involved, it was something he did in in his Lenin uh, Leninology, and uh, Mark had Mark Lewis and had done it in Tune In. Um, we liked the effect that it had in Mark's book, because it really is like you're reading a thriller, even though you know the story. Mm. Um, for me, you know, the difficulty of it was that 
the Beatles tended to sort of go into the studio and there might be a couple of outtakes left, but, you know, they wouldn't turn up until the anthology, which isn't going to, you know, Mark isn't covering until maybe the final volume anyway. Um, and also with, with John Lennon, he went in, recorded what he was doing, put it out. There weren't tons of outtakes. With Paul, it's a bit different because with Paul, there are always tons of outtakes and they might turn up five years later or 20 years later, you know, mm. and it's very difficult as, as a writer to mention one of these tracks without saying to the reader, and this was released on the B side of, you know, whatever eventually, because you're trying to be in the timeline. Um, so we did a little bit of that in footnotes. We sort of decided as if, you know, footnotes were, were a different reality than, than the story on the page. And, and we could say, for instance, when we talk about Hugh McCracken not being available when Paul first called him because he was in Florida recording with mm. Aretha Franklin, we have a footnote saying what he was recording and when it came out. Right. You know, right. so we felt that that doesn't really break you out of the um, lack of fair knowledge, but it also tells you the information. Right. That I well, think what, is the you want. What Alan's, what Alan's really trying to say is that basically every time he tried to do this during the process of writing, I'd do that. <laughs> Slap his hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny stuff. Um, interviewing people for, for the book. Uh, I want to talk about that for a second because that's, you know, somebody that does, a, you know, you know, as we do a, this Paul show, I mean, we, you know, try to interview people as well, you know, especially people that have worked with Paul and talk about, you know, that and, you know, people that you didn't get in. What is it good to be persistent, you know, and, and try to, you know, really tell people this is important. We're trying to do a, a good thing here. Your story would be a great help. And if they're just not interested, I mean, do you, do you try to con convince them or or just let it go? Yeah, no, you, you've got to let it you've got to let it go, really. Yeah. Um, you know, because the bottom line is that when, when anybody um, agrees to an interview, they're kind of opening up their life to you. So you've got to respect right. that. And some people are more open to it than others, you know. Um, so, yeah, you really do have to respect that. Uh, but um, no, I, I wouldn't say that we were overly persistently trying to get anybody. If somebody said they didn't want to talk to us and that that was that, you know. But occasionally we get people who'd say things like, oh, um, you know, have, have you got uh, Paul's approval for this? You know, like, say, Michael mm -hmm. Lindsay Hogg, for example, said that. Yeah. Uh, and he went to Paul for approval and then came back to us. And it seemed that mm. Paul had no problem with Michael Lindsay Hogg speaking to us. So, um, so yeah. But um, but what we what we did try to do was, was try to find people that you, you've not heard talk about this mm. period before. You know, like uh, Holly McCracken, for example. Uh, we, we did a brilliant interview with her about um, the summer of 71 and she talks about um, going to Scotland with Hugh and spending time with the McCartneys and walking through the fields and standing in cow pies I think she says <laughs> and yeah. uh, like for, for me you know those those stories those human stories were some of the the greatest moments mm -hmm. of, of writing this book for me was um, was finding finding out something new and and uh, mm -hmm. something colorful about that period because you know, it's strange we had a conversation when we started working on this book and, and I always said to Alan you know, we'll only really um, put this book out and, and, and write it 
if we find something new to say, because there's been so much said about McCartney's life before. Um, what we didn't count on is how much new we would have to say in the end. You know, mm. we, we just found all these brilliant stories, um, you know, to uh, to give more colour and I don't know. Um, you know, with yeah, Holly just, as yeah. well, we, we, we found with some of our interviewees, we ended up with this kind of dialogue, you know, between <laughs> them almost, um, because we, we've got, you know, Adrian talking to Denny and uh, Denny Sywell and him saying, uh, well, you know, when we were up there rehearsing, um, you know, Paul and Lindsay didn't want the wives there. And I'm not sure they were terribly happy about that. Okay, well, over to Holly. No, we were not happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Um, that's such a, but in the book, you know, that's such a brilliant story when, when you, and I don't want to give too much away for people listening to this, but right. when you hear the story about Paul and Hugh drinking whiskey together the night before Hugh left, I mean, that's just such a beautiful moment. You know, you right. can really, you know, if for anybody who's seen a photograph of High Park and they know how in the middle of nowhere it is, you know, you can really see that as almost like a, a scene from a film, two guys sitting mm -hmm. around a fire drinking whiskey and pouring their hearts out to each other. And it really right. gives you that human connection to um, how difficult it was for Paul to rebuild his life throughout this period. You know, um, he just got a new family and he was trying to put a new band together. But really, when the Beatles broke up, his world completely fell apart. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, I found that the most difficult thing about writing this book and putting it together, because I'd say that of, of the uh, 80 years McCartney's been on the planet, uh, that period was probably the most difficult for him. Uh, the breakup mm. of the Beatles, right. then probably, you know, the death of Linda. Right. Um, and, and then some other things, maybe in his personal life involving his second wife. Um, mm. But yeah, the uh, so I, I found that the most difficult thing. Uh, you know, trying to paint a portrait of a man who was, you know, coming out of the most difficult thing that, that ever happened in his life and, and trying to reemerge and rebuild himself. Right. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the 69 to 73, when I first heard that that was your main goal, I was kind of like, well, there's, you know, what about, you know, you can probably stretch that out a little bit. It doesn't make sense that you're only doing, you know, those, those with five, four or five years. And then while reading it, you uh, you understand the story you're trying to tell, or at least to me, I mean, here's a man on top of the world, could do no wrong with his songs he's given to the Beatles, his songs he's given to other people. I mean, a hit after hit after hit, then the meeting, you know, the breakup, the fall from grace, and then, you know, working his way back up top again, like you, you know, like you guys end brilliantly with the, you know, with the, at, with the end of 73. I mean, to me, I mean, that's just a great story to tell. And then all the great bits in between, like you said, Adrian, all the, you know, sprinkle in with all the human moments. You know, I also thought that him re, you know, uh, getting contacting Henry, you know, after they get back from Lagos, I thought that that was, that was a great touch from, from Paul, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so was that always just like the, the, the Genesis was, you know, we're going to do this, this, this amount of time because there's just a great story to tell, you know, from 69 to 73. It's strange. I think that that time frame was locked in early doors, wasn't it, Alan? Yeah. I mean, I think we knew how much stuff we had. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, as it is, it's a short period, as you say, but the book is like 720 pages. Right. And, <laughs> and we cut. <laughs> we cut a lot out. Um, wow. So this could be, uh, you know, we, we could have gone on much longer. And, uh, you know, we, we felt that 
you know, people like like Lyndon Johnson get a, a multi-volume biography series, mm-hmm. and you know, why not Paul McCartney? You know, we're, we're talking about one of the greatest musicians really ever, and but certainly in the twentieth and into the twenty-first century, he deserves that kind of a close examination, and uh, you know, and and we found so much interesting stuff, you know, just in mm-hmm. the way Wings was set up and how it worked mm-hmm. and, you know, what he, how he approached the idea of starting a new band and touring, you know, the idea of going up to universities, really an idea that he proposed back in the Beatles time, yes. you know, mm-hmm. um, and then going to Europe rather than going to England because he felt that that would be a little bit more out of the spotlight, even mm-hmm. though the British press went there and, uh, and covered right. it. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's been very interesting sort of watching the way he has dealt with you know, the, the hand he's been dealt really um, mm. after the Beatles broke up. Uh, you know, it was a tough time. And uh, this period, you know, coming out up to 1973 with, with Band on the Run really just short, sort of shows this sort of Phoenix-like you mm-hmm. know, rebirth in a way. And uh, right. so it was, a, it was a good period to do. We... I think we originally were going to stop before Band on the Run, but then yeah, no, that's that right, we were, yeah, yeah, that, that we felt that you know we really do have to take it up to Band on the Run because mm. that's the end of the first version of Wings, and it's right. you know the sort right. of dramatic right. denouement of the hit right, like, up, yeah, right. right. Um, with the book of this kind of microscopic detail, was there a period of time or an interval of time in the years or months that you found it hard? to write about a research given a few weeks or a few months in any of that time span. I mean, I know Adrian talked about Lagos and it was kind of quiet then, but other than that, was there any other periods of time, say in, you know, in 72 or three where things were really kind of, I mean, I know you didn't edit, but were there any intervals of time in Paul's life where it was like, okay, we got, what are we going to talk about here? Are we going to just gloss over a few weeks or like, did you come well, across any of that? Well, the thing with Paul is, I mean, he's he, he never stops, does he? He never sits still. Uh, and, and really, it's been strange for the last 12 months to see Paul um, sit still, actually. He's only done a few concerts, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, right. but, the, but he's 80 now. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, we, we I can't say we ever found a period of time where, you know, he sat still and we had nothing to write about. You know, even, we, even tiny little things that we found, you know... Um, so Lin- Linda's heavily pregnant during the wildlife mm-hmm. recording. Um, and yet during that time, Paul and Linda still find time to go to Blackpool, an island, you know, and uh, this is with a heavily pregnant Linda. So there, there's never a moment where he was, he was sitting still. Um, and, and in every one of those moments, there's a musical connection as well, you know, because he goes to Blackpool and we all know the song that came out of there, don't we? Mm-hmm. You know, we heard it on um, bootlegs over the years. And um, that came out of a family trip to Blackpool, and then he go, and then he takes a private jet to Ireland uh, to seek out somebody to to dress up in a suit to be Percy Thrillington, you know, in in the same summer. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's it's strange that there's there's never a never a dull moment in the life of Paul McCartney. So mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, we never we never found a period where there was there was little to talk about. Right. Good, mm-hmm. cool. Cool. Um, I guess let's dig into the book here. Um, 
I want to start with, um, you know, Paul announcing the split, or I'm not really announcing, but just the headline for from from Mir, um, you know, the Paul quits the Beatles, which he never said. But the the, the thing that I th I think about a lot is. You know, John announcing the split, Klein wanting them to keep it quiet. How long should Paul have waited for John to announce something? You know, I've always think of think about that. Is you know, John has all these moments because the deals that Klein made they they happen relatively quickly after he said keep it quiet until these deals happen, right? So you know, John has what what four or five months to say something before Paul finally you know does his his solo record Alan what I mean what are your thoughts on on that yeah it's true I, I don't know how long Paul should have waited but um you, you know you're right John had had lots of opportunities to do it and the fact that Paul hadn't done it before April um, you know, that everyone was trying to sort of, you know, respect John's right to be the one to say it. And it's, it's interesting that in the book, um, there are a lot of places where, you know, Paul has, um, his own, let's say myth making, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way I'm telling it. But Linda will sometimes chime in with the reality. And there's this one mm -hmm. quote we have in there is, uh, where she says, let's just say that John made it clear he wanted to be the one to announce it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, he, he could easily have put out McCartney without making that announcement. Mm. And uh, you know, who knows, but you know, after a while, you know, you're in the group too. Uh, mm -hmm. You're affected as well by the fact that um, there is this, unannounced breakup. Um, and Paul was probably affected more than everybody else because he was saying, you know, from very early on, okay, if we're going to break up, I want out and I want, mm -hmm. you know, my share of this. I, you know, he didn't quite probably realize yet that his solo royalties were going to go into Apple as well. You know, mm -hmm. um, but he was the one who didn't want to be represented by Klein, who, you know, felt constantly pushed into things that Klein is involved with and meetings involving Klein and what Klein wants and who Klein wants. And, you know, I, I can see why he would have been the one to make the announcement that the Beatles don't seem to have a future as vaguely as he put it, because he was the one who was sort of under the most duress. Mm -hmm. So John could have, he had every opportunity to, but I think John wanted, John wanted it both ways. John yes. wanted the band to break up and he wanted to be the one to say it, but he also wanted it around in case he changed. Right. You know, right. Because, you know, we do have the life magazine article right with him talking about the you know this beetle thing is is, is broken up which totally <laughs> nobody's just, I nobody think, which nobody noticed and, I, and I think you know if you read the article it's it's more about you know is he dead rather than is the beetles <laughs> broken up. so i think that's what what more people cared about you know while while reading that you know life magazine bit but uh still amazing uh when you, when you think about it um andy Okay. Uh, the, the the powers of the Eastman. I mean, the influence of the Eastmans right off the bat. 
uh, with with him regarding business and you know mm. buying you know buying more more stock in Northern Songs and you know getting into to publishing. I mean, right off the bat, I mean those are things that you know could have you know helped the whole band really. If think about, but they were getting into publishing anyways uh, while in the Beatles, which we saw in you know the Let It Be. So you can talk a little bit about the you know the influence of you know of the Eastmans there in '69. Oh, it's hard to underestimate the influence of the Eastmans throughout mm -hmm. Paul's entire life. I think you know they. Mm -hmm. I, I think without without their guidance, um, maybe Paul wouldn't have the business empire he has today. You know they were central to it right. from day one. Um, mm -hmm. You know they 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 showed him uh, good business sense and and how to invest his money so that he wouldn't mm -hmm. have to pay it all in tax. You know, uh, and um, and yeah. And that kind of ripples throughout this book and even more so into the second book, you know, because Paul's mm -hmm. publishing interests in 75, 76 onwards, they get more and more when he gets, you know, an influx of cash from the, the Beatles separation, their divorce. Um, and, and when um, Band on the Run makes him such a phenomenal amount of cash, I'm guessing around that time as well. Um, mm. But yeah, the, the Eastmans were central to all of that. And really, as Alan said, uh, Klein was was the major obstruction for, for the Beatles, and and it's interesting because we've all seen the Get Back film. We, we've all right. we all came away we all came away from that with this great sense of wonder and joy that the Beatles were this brilliant uh, unit and they were so unified and together. Um, but right at the very end, you see um, the conversation between John and George, where he says that he's had a, a dinner with Klein, and that really was the mm -hmm. beginning of the end. Yeah. Um, what did Paul call it? He called it the Liberty Bell moment, didn't he? I think you know, that was really that was the Liberty Bell moment. That was it. Um, and, and as soon as Klein came on the scene, it was it was game over. Um, had the Eastmans been, you know, the, the Beatles managers and business managers as well, then who knows what would have happened? Right. Um, but yeah, it's hard. To, you, you can't you can't understate just how important the Eastmans were. Um, to Paul, I think not not only for um, for his business, but also for for his sanity to have that, those support. kind of advisors on your side. You know, when you're going through right. a period of depression and, yeah. uh, and wondering what's going to happen next, to have people like that on your side giving you sound business advice and a, and a wife giving you um, mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the emotional support exactly. Um, you know, they, they were central to everything. You know, and it was really sad to hear about John Eastman passing away um, mm. this year. Yeah. Um, right. Would it would it be fair to say that and we've talked Alan mentioned this and we talked about this how Paul didn't really have any access because all of his money was tied up with Apple, yet he's forming a band and traveling and doing these things. Would it be fair to say that the Eastmans might have helped the McCartneys out a little bit financially until Paul's money started to roll in? If you guys know that to be factual or not yeah, or hypothesis. No, I mean I I think it's just all about sound business, really. It it. It, you know, we, we do mention in the book that there are times when Paul gets an influx of money. So he, he signs up for mm -hmm. doing live and let die. He gets some cash. He, he does these deals. He gets cash. But this is this is Paul's money. So you have to mm. appreciate that that that's Paul's cash, and this is the cash he's making from from his band. That's the business money. You have to separate the two. Um, and I don't think Paul was ever you know ever open to blurring the lines really. Um, mm. And the the big issue Wings had obviously was that. Um, you know, uh, they, they bring out wildlife. The money's still going to the apple pot. Right. 
Um, and I think even uh, all their singles and Red Rose Speedway and, and Band on the Run, right. all the money's still dropping into the Apple part. It's not going, not going to Wings. So all right. of that money from from Wings is, is tied up in Apple. Okay, so then how are they able to afford private jets, five star hotels, paying Wing members 70, 70 pounds a week? You yeah, know, I mean, he, does he, he have money off to the side, though? Well, he wasn't poor. <laughs> no, mean, well, he, that's the thing. It's like he has money off to the side, right, uh, in order to do all this. Right. That was his That was his personal cash, though, that would have been funding okay. all of that. Um, and as okay. I say, I, I think when you're a businessman, you can't blur the lines between what are your personal finances and what are your business finances. And that's why the situation ended up the way it did was because there was no money in the band box. Um, but no. there was plenty of money in the McCartney pot, but the two things are completely separate. Um, mm. And then, as I say, that's probably why the situation ended up the way it did. They did okay. also get an allowance from Apple of like what okay. was three thousand pounds a month or something like that. Okay. So, so there was that, and then um, you know later when uh, when Paul and Linda started writing together, I mean that right. became a, a dispute with uh, ATV, right. but. Because Linda was not signed right. by Apple and EMI, um, her publishing royalties went to fundamentally MPL, whereas mm -hmm. Paul's went to Apple. So they did have some money coming in from Linda's collaborations. So there was that yeah, as well. Right. But then, then they went off and bought a Lamborghini. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Well, hey, they're deservedly so, right? Come, come the spoils, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, where are we at here? Um, the twenty-nine song demo, uh, very productive summer of seventy that you guys talk about. A lot of, lot of songs that would carry for the next what twenty-seven, twenty-nine years, all the way up until Flaming Pie. Really, when you think about it, uh, talk about that for a second. Just the, 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 the amount of songs he has you know, to record the next album with is just staggering. It really is amazing. Yeah, it's strange because you know, in uh, sort of the end of 69, he's struggling to right. muster two chords together, you know. Um, and, and then eventually he gets to a point where he's writing things like Maybe I'm Amazed. Um, and then you get to the summer of 70 and all of a sudden it feels like maybe because the shackles were off and he's announced mm -hmm. that he's going solo, um, that he all of a sudden has this incredible, um, you know, period of, um, yeah, creative period where he, he, he writes nearly 30 songs. So, um, so, so yeah, uh, but I, I think the um, I think the influence of being in Scotland was was a great thing for Paul as well, and and that seems to ripple on throughout the next decade or so. That every time he goes to Scotland, his head clears, and all of a mm. sudden he has this kind of um, great creative emergence where he, he he just comes out with lots and lots of great songs. Um, but that but that summer, it, it's hard to really explain why he wrote so many songs in such a short period of time. Mm hmm. Hmm. Alan? Well, you know, as Adrian said, he was feeling unshackled. He was in this sort of idyllic place where, you know, he was a gentleman farmer in a way, but the really hard stuff was being done by Duncan, his, uh, his, his estate manager. Um, and so he could just take a guitar and go off into a field and sit there and mm -hmm. play. And uh, he, 
just kept coming up with ideas for songs. You know, we say 29 song demo, but some of those songs were right. actually medleys. So we're talking mm -hmm. about really more than 30 songs. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I, I, I guess he just felt uh, just free to do it. You know, the, the creative tap had gone back on when it had been a little bit frozen at the end of 69. And, uh, you know, he comes back from the, that trip to Scotland with just the lovely Linda. And that would be something which, you know, lovely Linda, he says right in his press release, isn't really mm -hmm. a finished song, but he'll finish it sometime. Um, <laughs> and that would be something is, you know, it's more finished, but it's but still <laughs> quite, it's, it's not much of a song. You know, it's okay, but you know, the fact I think what makes it work on the album is there's so much other good stuff, like Maybe I'm Amazed, you know, and, and it right. took him a while to get to the point where he could write Maybe I'm Amazed. Having done mm -hmm. that, I think, I think the, uh, you know, the, the valve just opened in that spring and summer, uh, up in Scotland of, of 70. Uh, and also knowing he's going to New York to do an album. I um, mean, this was John Eastman's idea. Uh, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those intangible contributions that the Eastman made, you know, just coming up with, with ideas that sometimes he accepted, you know. Mm. Um, you know, in this case, it was why don't you go to a different city with great studios, great musicians, uh, and just, you know, get yourself out of your comfort zone and do it. And that right. appealed to him. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So he knew he had to go do that. He needed some songs and just sort of, you know, wrote all of that stuff, which, uh, <laughs> as you say, you know, took years to come out. Right. Some, but even, uh, yeah. But even songs like Dragonfly and I Lie Around go, go back to that date. And it's just interesting mm -hmm. to see that they were, in strong, you know, consideration at the time. Now they came out a couple of years later, but that summer of seventies, where a lot of these songs first, the germ of them all kind of came together. And it's, you know, I like, I think you talk about it in the book. I lie around was basically just Paul's state of mind at the time, because that's what he, that's what he was doing. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm. I mean, there's, there's so many incidents of this and, and Paul, Paul quite often says that a lot of his music isn't, you know, biographical, but, um, every song he writes is a reflection of of his state of mind at that time. And Little mm -hmm. Lamb Dragonfly is is an absolute nugget. Right. You know, he's uh, he's cradling a, a dying lamb in his arms. I mean, mm. you can't think of a more human image, you know, than than uh, cradling a dying animal. And then a dragonfly flying through, flying through the window, and he he plucks those little things out of his life and, and he drops them onto the page, and. Um, He's got such a great capacity to do that as a songwriter. You know, I, I always mm. say he's a bit—he's a bit like a musical magpie. You know, he kind of—he takes ideas from newspapers and uh, from from his own life or wherever it might mm. be, um, and and he has this great ability to just kind of wrap them all up in poetry uh, and music and then deliver them in song. It's—it's um, it's a God-given talent, really, that to, to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, each of those songs from that period is a, is a great reflection of where his head was at. Uh, it's one of my favorite chapters in the whole book, actually, is that. Very, very enjoyable. It's, so, it's just a lot yeah. of fun to read, you know, because you get yeah. such, right. a, such a brilliant um, insight into how his mind operates as a yes. songwriter. Um, yeah. And um, uh, yeah, and, and how he was starting to overcome some of his self-doubt around that time as well. Right. Um, well. 
And, and, uh, and yeah. then, you know, his mindset while recording Ram, you know, that whole, those Ram sessions were, you know, seemed endless, it seemed like, um, you know, page after page, but very interesting because this is, this was a fascinating part of the book is, you know, day by day in the studio, yep. what he's doing. And, you know, I didn't realize this, that, you know, when, when, he, when he's working with Cywell and uh, Spinoza, I mean, he's just going over the songs with them. He's not playing bass. He's not singing. Uh, it's, it's, it seems like it's just a long, tedious process, uh, at first, um, you know, let's talk about that for a second, Alan. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, you know, they were expecting him to be on bass, uh, even when him and, uh, Sywell are doing road all night, he's playing guitar and, you know, not in a, I mean, it's just really interesting to read these Ram sessions. Very good. Yeah. I think, you know, um, Spinoza particularly wanted to hear him play bass. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that comes through in, in the things he said and, uh, and was surprised that he didn't. Um, Cywell, you know, I think Cywell took a more, you know, they were both very experienced studio musicians, but I think Cywell took a more, uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know who the word, uh, but his approach was, okay, this is how Paul's doing it. And this is what we're doing. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't really question it as much. He, just, he was just more relaxed, wasn't he, Denny? And yeah. that's just probably a reflection of his personality. He's just a more relaxed guy, maybe. Probably. And then Hugh as well, you know, um, getting through the rest of it. Um, uh, you know, they were, they were content to see, you know, how it was... <clears throat> unfolding even if in, they they knew they would hear the finished product eventually they weren't really mm -hmm. clamoring to hear it um but you know I, I i wouldn't be surprised if in some cases uh once paul added his bass and vocals he brought it in and, and played it for them you know during during the beginning of the session when they're playing back stuff mm. um while on the other hand he's you know very aware that he's paying session time um, right and wants to get it done and this is why i did it that way it's like okay you know with the beatles especially at the end of the beatles they're coming in with their ideas right into the studio and you're seeing as you saw in the get back film um mm. just making it up right in the studio, just doing the writing right there, sitting there with a, you know, Mal holding a pad and coming up with the lyrics. Um, the Beatles were coining money for EMI and EMI was not going to complain about them doing that. However they wanted to work, they were working. This is a different situation for Paul. He's on his own. Um, mm. He's responsible for this budget. And uh, although if you, you, know, you look at the amount of time he took, he obviously wasn't that concerned about the budget right. but, <laughs> but nevertheless he was trying to be efficient you know mm -hmm. i'll do my bass lines later i'll do my vocals right. there's no reason for me to do this with these guys sitting around who are being paid mm -hmm. you know like triple session rate so right. you know that's that's the way it was i i didn't find you know recording sessions can be tedious you know mm -hmm. uh, i've 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 been to quite a few and you know even when you really admire the musicians uh you know the repetition and the you know little debates about should this note be louder than that note i mean all this stuff is, isn't necessarily something you want to see and i don't think we got into that kind of minutia 
in this. Um, so mm. to me, it didn't seem tedious at all. It, it, it just seemed actually very efficient. Uh, you know, they, they come in, they try to do, in some cases, it took them two or three days to get the basic track, you know, backseat mm. of my car had, you know, several tries and there were some others too. Generally speaking, his more involved compositions um, for this album. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, think, I, mean, I, mm -hmm. I was just going to say what, what I think happened during those sessions is that he, he came into those sessions kind of with this great songbook brimming with ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also, I think there was a, a little modicum of hope that maybe he wouldn't have to see the Beatles. Um, mm -hmm. But by the end of 1970, it becomes very clear that he's going to have to mm -hmm. see the Beatles. And he, and he drifts back into depression again. Right. And uh, and then you hit the start of 71, where that's the reality. He's suing his bandmates. And uh, and, a, and he hits this period where he's overdubbing on his own and finding mm -hmm. it really difficult to get to the finish line. Um, and, and I think that that was nothing to do with motivation. I just think when he had that much going on in his head, um, that he couldn't focus and, and finish the song. So again, John Eastman steps in and says, go to Los Angeles, clear your head. Right. Um, and eventually the the album, you know, they, they get it over the line at sound recorders in Los Angeles. Um, mm. But yeah, the um, having all of that court case playing out in the background, um, you know, throughout that period, I think was such a distraction for Paul. And, and, mm. uh, and Ram as the product of that period, I mean, it's astonishing, isn't it, really, to think he was going through all of that and yet he comes out with this incredible album. Right. Um, but there's some other great things that happen, obviously, during that time that we found out, you know, like this is what happens when you put the timeline together. You know, um, when you find out that Paul, uh, the, the court case is going to start, I think it was, was it February the 14th, 1971? And he mm. says, hmm, what could we do on that day? Well, should we put a single out? You know, and he, he decides <laughs> it's a conscious choice yeah. to put a single out mm -hmm. on the day he's going to be in court. So, I mean, that's like the ultimate act from the ultimate PR guy. You know, he, mm -hmm. he finds out what day he's in court in London. And, uh, you know, as he's walking down the street towards the court, radios all around London are playing his latest single. And that's brilliant. Mm. Um, and and that I think that's the magic of writing the book the way we've done it, is that you, you're not separating life from song. The two are intertwined. Yeah, you know? as to your point at the at the top of the show, one of the aspects I found revolutionary reading the book, and something probably just we should have all known, but really when you guys talked about how Paul, when he made the decision to sue, you know, and got his solicitors and got his team in place, you know, he had all he had the one up before, and then you know yeah. when they, when when they found out, it was like he had six. I mean, how many months of knowledge? and got his facts in order and got his solicitors all lined up to, to do this. And then was like, okay, game on. And that you guys really illustrate that well in the book, that point that Paul had the time to prepare, get his, get his tactical move, what he wanted to do. And then, you know, drop the hammer on them, so to speak. Well, I mean, he spent most of that year trying to persuade the other Beatles to, you know, to, to, to let him go. So, um, mm. you know, he, he did absolutely everything in his power to get out of that contract with Apple without having to see them. And that was the, you know, that was the kind of um, the last thing he really wanted to do. Um, but, yeah, he'd had a period of, of time to, to prepare his case. So he caught them on the back foot when they did hit, hit court. Yeah. And frankly, really, that was to the benefit of every Beatles fan in the whole world, really, because mm. Paul wins the case. 
um he's he's proven right you know the beatles dropped klein and they're all friends again so um so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of friend. I, I mean, you know, George with his constant little, you know, little digs, you know, throughout the the seventies and into the eighties, though. But uh, I'm sure they all loved each other and everything. But you know, the 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 written testaments of of the other three during this trial. I mean, you know, George, you know, to get a peaceful life, I always had to let Paul have his own way. You know, I mean, when you when you read things like this, and especially what Ringo had to say, I mean, it's 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 pretty sad because those lessons that he should have learned during that time, did he really learn them, you know, while recording Wings albums? And, you know, was it really a band? Did they all really get to contribute equally? Did they all get to reap the rewards that Paul did? You know what I mean? So when you read that, it's like you got to question yourself. Is Paul learning lessons, you know, throughout his, his life? You know, yeah, is think- he learning from past mistakes? I think that that knocks on into our second book, really. And, and mm. uh, I I think that the second book is actually probably slightly more joyous than the first book. I think there's a lot mm. of hard times for Paul in this first book. Mm. But when you come right. through to 74, through to the end of uh, the 70s, uh, I, th- I think he does learn from those mistakes. It take, maybe takes him a little while. Um, mm. And I think that um, you see a, a gradual climb, really, in, in terms of the way that he handles things on, on that kind of level. Um, mm. But, yeah, you, I mean, the, the, there'll always be question marks about those kind of things, won't they, about, um, you know, George saying that he was overbearing and things like that. And yeah. I think it's just a, a personality trait. You know, he's, he's a perfectionist, you know. And, yeah. and I think Alan points this out quite frequently in the book, um, which is that hasn't he got right to to be a perfectionist you know when you're that good you know when you're writing songs that are that good and you don't want george to be playing little notes in between every right. phrase of hey jude can you just say george can you not play that on hey jude you know yeah. i think he, he, he probably had earned the right to say those things um but right. no you're right you know um and you pretty know, much that, that George directed his own songs, you know, I mean, right. uh, if, if Paul's doing something George didn't want in his songs, he would have said exactly the same thing. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's how a band works. The, you know, the interesting thing it, it occurred to me as you were talking about the, um, the, the uh, testimony from the other Beatles in this case is I, I kind of wonder what their lawyer, uh, Morris Finer, uh what his strategy was because by basically having each of them come out and say how difficult Paul was, they were simply making Paul's case that he should be allowed to leave. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, they, they should have been coming out saying, no, no, we just can't do it without Paul. Right. <laughs> or something, you know? And uh, mm. so by having them come out and say all these things, I, I don't think that they did themselves a favor if they didn't want to split the the partnership. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a tough time. Uh, I it would have been interesting if they all actually testified in person, um, right? But they didn't. They just yeah. did it by deposition and, and including Paul. And right. Paul, you know, then subsequently in response to some of of their statements wrote another letter and had it submitted into the, into mm. the court record. Mm. So it, yeah. Mm. Another interesting aspect too, is when he does bring in, you know, producers, right. And you got the Chicago producer, you got, you know, Glenn Johns, 
and in his comments to them in the introductions, just treat me like another member of the band, right? You know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, I'm just the bass player, right? And then, you know, three, four weeks later, those producers are gone, you know, um, and you get, you know, snipey comments from from Paul, maybe, uh, you know, John's, you know, frustration with them, just, you know, the relaxed atmosphere, um, you know, talk about that for a second. I mean, is this like the, the reason why maybe he, chose to produce himself all the way up to you know back to the egg um, what well, do you guys I think, think i think there's there's a two two separate interesting stories aren't there you know on the ram mm -hmm. sessions you got jim gercio mm -hmm. uh, and i think that 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 was just uh that that whole situation was brought about by the fact that paul was depressed for sure mm -hmm. Paul was depressed, turning up to the studio late, smoking pot. I mean, those are classic right. signs of depression. Uh, and then, but when you get to the Glenn John sessions, uh, I personally feel that the band went into the studio too early. Um, mm. You know, they'd only been together as a five piece for what, at that point, about four, no, maybe eight weeks or something. You know, I mean, mm. when Henry joined them at this, the Scotch St. James Club in London for rehearsals, that was sort of like January time, wasn't it? So as a band, they'd not been together very long. They've been on the road and played, what, nine or ten gigs at the universities? Mm -hmm. I mean, this isn't a tight band. So, uh, you know, and Glenn, Glenn Johns is working with, I mean, you, you've the seen who. his roster, the yeah. roster of people, yeah. the Who, Rolling Stones. Yeah. Yeah, he's just yeah. done all these incredible yeah. albums, like the Eagles' first album. You know, right. you, could, you could just feel them off. And Glenn Johns goes into the studio with these guys who are fresh from the road and just asking around in the studio, probably, and smoking pot. And, and he thinks, God, what the fuck is this? You know, <laughs> you know, this isn't the guy I saw recording the Get Back album last no, year. Right. You, know, you know what I mean? He's uh, he, he, he's seen this completely different, um, you know, it's completely different thing. So, so I think that Glenn John's frustrations have probably completely warranted because the band just weren't ready to go in the studio and the material right. they had, let's face it, wasn't that great at that time. Well, well, to the flip side to that then is they can be really focused. I mean, look at you guys right that. I mean, for the wildlife, they recorded 40 minutes of music with very little rehearsals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know Henry's not in the band then, but they, they can get focused. I mean, you know, I mean, so it's, it's kind of the tale of two Pauls, you know, throughout the whole, throughout the whole book, really. Um, at bits and you know bits and pieces, so it's it, it is interesting how you know sessions to sessions how different they are, um, you know depending on what Paul's going through at that point in time in his life. Mm -hmm. Well, say, I mean, Paul Paul says himself, doesn't he, in the book, you know, that each album is a reaction to the last one. So mm. he puts out McCartney, everybody says it's homespun, so he records Ram which is lush production. Right. Everybody pans Ram. So he says, oh, okay, well, screw it. I'll record Wildlife in two weeks. Everybody <laughs> pans Wildlife. So he says, okay, well, what shall I do now? So it's back to the drawing board with Red Rose Speedway. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, you, you just don't know what was in Paul's head, you know, what was in his mind with Red Rose. Was it going to be a focused period of recording? Were they going to get all the album down in two months? I just think probably within himself, he knew that the material that they had going into those sessions wasn't strong enough to, you know, a basis for an album. And that's why they, they eventually would have broken off anyway, regardless. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Andy, got something? Yeah. I was just going to say, um, embellish just a little bit, if you, if you could about the story about uh, Denny, Denny Lane getting, getting thrown out of the, of the, I guess, of one of the nights by uh, one of the wives. 
Alan, we've got we yeah. we've got nothing. <laughs> yeah, we don't we we don't know much more detail about other than that, that he just uh, was right. Uh, that he was, and you know, you can draw your own inferences about what might have happened, um, which is, and you, and you probably will come up with pretty much what we've come up with in discussing it between us, but we don't have any further facts about yeah. it. So, Nine. Well, it kind of segues into another point I'd like to bring up is the introduction of Denny Lane into Wings. Um, mm-hmm. I, had, I had not finished the book yet, Tom, as Adrian, I told you, but Tom did, so I didn't get, I'm up to wildlife just about now where he's coming into the picture. Can you kind of clarify a little bit about Denny Lane and um, obviously where he was at that time? As Because uh, I think he was basically homeless, right? Yeah, he's been... <laughs> it depends, uh, you know, how you look at homeless. I mean, he was living in a caravan, um, so he had the caravan. And he, he, at least in interviews, talked about how he preferred that to having a house and paying rent and, you know, having to fix it up when he leaves and all of that stuff. So, um, yeah, Denny was in a, a very peculiar position. He'd been in the Moody Blues, then out of the Moody Blues, he had his uh, string electric string bands. He went to Spain and, you know, learned to play flamenco and played with some bands there and then came back. He's he's writing in a, a, a songwriting mill, you know, uh, basically writing tunes that he's hoping other people will pick up and and record. Uh, And he has, you know, not an awful lot going on, but a lot of things he's hoping will turn out seed. Um, And then Paul calls him and invites him into this because, you know, Paul had known him since uh, since his movie Blues Days when they were briefly managed by Brian Epstein. And uh, I think they... They were, you know, second or third build on a, a Beatles tour. Um, so he knew him and he's looking around for people to play in the band when Hugh, uh, deci- Hugh decides not to make the yeah. track. Right. You know, he still needs a guitarist. Uh, so he sort of takes a flyer, calls Denny. Denny is available and ready to do it. So he makes his way up to Scotland and, uh, you know, sleeps for a day on his, on Paul's homemade couch. (laughs) And, uh, and then suddenly he's ready for the couple of days of rehearsal before it's time to record. And that's (laughs) any getting into the wing story. really wings. That's funny. But of course, Um, uh, in in the, in the background of that, you've got the fact that that Denny was still under contract mm. Uh, from with, with Tony Secunda, right. so so that that mm-hmm. creates a whole mess. Is that of with the band Balls? Balls, yes. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't yeah. you mentioned Balls <laughs> and, and Balls. You know, it's it's interesting. You know, we 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 spent some time trying to unravel the mystery of Balls. You know, mm. because uh, because, <laughs> because uh, we, we we always like to explore the the background of every member of Wings and look mm-hmm. at what they were up to and. And the situation surrounding balls, we had to we had to clarify what was going on in terms of their management situation and everything, you know, to get to get our, our facts straight. Um, and, and we spoke to Alan White, who was in uh, who's he was a drummer in balls at, at one point, mm-hmm. and contacted a couple of other members of the band. And we found various press interviews with the guys where they all talked about um, the fact that they'd been under contract with Secunda, so we could clarify that. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, yeah, unraveling the mystery and mystery of balls was was quite interesting. <laughs> well, one thing that never made the book actually. Great title for I a remember, book, right there. I, I remember, <laughs> I remember reading uh, an interview about three or four months before they broke up, and uh, they touted this idea of uh, touring around the country in a van and playing gigs out of the back of the van. So mm. of course, when when Wings do their university tour. That's also something Denny was quite keen to do in, during his time in Balls. Um, you get the feeling around that time that Denny was just a bit of a habitual kind of drifter. You know, he mm. was um, spending time in Spain and then drifting here and then drifting there. Right. And Paul gave the guy some direction. Um, mm. and, and he's such a laid back guy, Denny Lane, isn't he? That, um, you know, him and Paul could get on without clashing, you know, <clears throat> without butting heads together, which might right. not have been the case with someone with a you know a stronger will like a john lennon character uh, denny's mm -hmm. just a very laid-back midlands guy or even a henry right. mcculloch or yeah. even a henry yeah yeah interesting let's let's dig into the wings uh if you will here because i love i love 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 the opening sentence on chapter 22 okay we've been hammering ourselves into shape for a year and i think this is the right time to show what we can really do mccartney said of wings during preparations for his 1973 television special to be called james paul mccartney now <laughs> now throughout that first period of wings you know he's had a hard time being able to call them wings right i mean red rose speedway had to be you know had to be turned into you know uh, paul mccartney and wings i think the the second tour they wanted him to go out as paul mccartney and wings right not not necessarily wings mm -hmm. so you know there's that you know age old argument you know is 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 wings a band you know when you have to consistently go back to referring it to a, a, as paul mccartney um really kind of frustrating i guess and then going back to the contracts thing too you know there's the two meetings with the full member with all the members of wings with the eastmans right and saying there's just there's just no money to be given out you know plus the contracts you know you can't we can't give you guys a contract either because you've got contracts elsewhere so I, I would imagine it's 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 cool to be in a band with McCartney, but also frustrating to be in a band with McCartney. It's interesting, though, because when it comes to the Paul McCartney and Wings thing, that was something mm -hmm. that was forced upon them, really, by management. Right. You know? yeah. right. So mm -hmm. that, that was, a, that was a, a suggestion by Vincent Romeo, or it was mm -hmm. someone on, on the, uh, you know, promoters on promoters the tour. Promoters eight. Yeah, yeah. They, they'd say, oh, you know what, you'll sell more tickets if you've got the name Paul McCartney on there. Well, of course they will. But it was never really Paul's intention uh, to go out on the road. And I think he actually found it quite embarrassing. You know, when, you, when you've read as many interviews as we have from this time, constantly mm -hmm. gets asked that question and other members of the band get asked that question you know why are you touring mm -hmm. as paul mccartney and wings and not just wings and you get mm -hmm. denny sirewell and, and and denny lane saying you know well really it's not our choice we prefer to be you know known just as wings right so uh, so that really wasn't one of paul's calls mm. alan anything to add to that um no i think that's that that pretty much covers it but you know you're right it must have been frustrating for them in a way uh, mm. uh frustrating but also you know they recognize too that that paul is really the meal ticket here you know right um that right. if people are going to see wings they know who they're going to see right um mm. but they i think they did want some creative input into the right. finished product into the music and and that as we saw 
through um, Henry's involvement was an issue, you know, Henry, Henry, we were talking about a guy who, you know, as a blues guitarist is involved in making up solos all the time in improvising in sort of freewheeling and, uh, and Paul is telling him what to play. And mm. that didn't really go over very well. Dan, uh, uh, Henry wanted to have his own input and he, he gets his way in my love, um, with great results. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but that doesn't stick as a policy. Um, so I, I think that, you know, for them, the frustration, if, if there was frustration, was more to do with that, you know, that musical way of working than with whether they were called Paul McCartney and Wings, although they did mm -hmm. mention that they, you know, at one point in uh, 73, they say, yeah, well, I, we're told that on the next tour, it's going to be just right. Wings. But right now it has to be Paul McCartney and Wings because that's what they want. But you know, yeah, interesting stuff. But there will, there, you will know, have been some, there will have been some record label push on that as well. EMI mm -hmm. would have said, "Yeah, right." Yeah. Sorry, Tom, I cut you off. Right. No, it's all right. But uh, you know, I'll let Andy ask the question about this one because this is uh, <laughs> a fun topic too regarding the double, the double? album aspect oh, of you know man. Red Rose Speedway. Andy, why don't you go ahead with that? Well, the fact that you know he wanted to wanted a double LP, and yet uh, was constantly told no, and yet you know Yoko Ono got you know a double LP around the same time period, with no, with, with no questions asked, hmm. Hmm. <laughs> which is just you know, and it's a good record. It's it's, it's enjoyable. It's an, I like it, but I mean we can't you know Paul McCartney has enough material for a double LP, and you're constantly saying no. Um, do we know the genesis of why? And was it just... Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, first of all, EMI, I, I think if EMI had heard what he wanted to put out as a double LP, uh, that might have been a bit different because what they're <clears throat> thinking of is, okay, the last thing we had from him was wildlife and now he wants to put out a double LP. Um, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't let him, you know, and at the same time they were about to put out the, you know, right. red and blue. The albums. red and the blues. So yeah. there's two more uh, double LPs. And then I think George was coming out with an album and they just felt that there would be a glut of, Beatles and former Beatles competing against each other and that it wouldn't be good for anyone if he did a double LP. Uh, you know, just offhand, I think any of us here can think of a gazillion solutions to that problem. Right. Uh, <laughs> rescheduling things, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it was really EMI. I mean, in Vincent Romeo, Paul's then new manager, had gone to EMI to talk about um Red Rose Speedway and when he went into the office it was a double album when he came out of the office it was a single album right. it, was, yeah. it was kind of like uh, you know Vincent Romeo is the new guy so let him be the one to tell Paul you know, that it's only going to be yeah. a single yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I, I think EMI must have heard the double album I mean they had acetates pressed so they, they must have heard the, the album. They were, weren't they still sort of juggling what was going to be in what yeah, order? There was, a, there was a kind of debate over what was going to be on the album, what wasn't going to be on the album, but they must have heard a, a two, two LP 
um, you know, iteration of Red Rose. And I, and I think their big problem with it was that it had, um, it, it, it was too much of a Wings album. And what they wanted was a Paul McCartney album. So right. what did they do? They cut Denny Lane's song, they dropped Linda's song, right. um, you know, and, and they basically turned it into a, you know, a, a more commercial Paul McCartney right. album. And throw a blue sticker on it that says Paul McCartney and Wings. That's right. right. Yeah. In, Ameri- in America. With, with, with Paul McCartney's face on the front cover, just Paul, right. exactly. nobody else, you know. So I, th- I think really that was commercially driven. But then Wildlife was, I, I mean, such a commercial disaster. I think by that point, EMI were really looking to, you know, try and make some money back. Uh, and, and, and Red Rose Speedway had to be commercial. So they cut it to a single album. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've all heard the double album. I mean, it was a brilliant representation of where they were at at that time. Yeah. Every member of the right. band had their kind of moment in the spotlight. You know, it was it was probably, a really terrific double LP. Probably, if it had come out, it would have been the most democratic Wings album, other than Speed of Sound. Absolutely, mm-hmm. without doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would and have a really good and a really good album as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, we need to talk a, a, a talk about two people for a few minutes here. We'll go one by one here, but first, let's you know we mentioned Klein a little bit. Let's let's just talk about Paul's really dislike for Klein uh, because there's some there's some stuff in here that's really I mean if you don't know how much Paul hated Klein I mean read this book I mean especially this dear pig oh you have nothing to do with my affairs so keep out of them (laughs) you know fuck off PM you know and then and then not doing the 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 concert for Bangladesh not doing the one-to-one because he doesn't he, he feels like Klein would then take credit for that you know, let's talk about that for a second. I mean, it's just really, you, you know, you get the sense throughout his career that he really hated Klein, but you you understand now reading this book, you know, what it is about Klein that he just doesn't want Klein to have any credit whatsoever for anything to do with his career. Yeah, I mean, it started out, I think, as an economic issue. You know, he mm. he knew from talking to people in New York and also from talking to the Stones who had initially mm-hmm. recommended Klein, but then discovered that um, suddenly Klein owns all of their masters uh, right. up, up through, um, but not including Sticky Fingers, except for Wild Horses and Brown Sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and he owns all of the Stones publishing. So the Stones, who had recommended Klein, you know, suddenly realized that, uh, yeah, he did get us a better deal, and it was even better for him. Um, and Sam Cooke went through the same thing. You know, so Klein had sort of a history of this. He's a very interesting character because on one hand, you know, he had the skill to see what record companies were doing to the artists. And he had the impulse at, at, at some point in the timeline with each of these artists to help the artists get what was coming to them from the record company. And then at another point in the timeline, he sort of got in there in between the record company and the artist and siphoned off a lot of stuff for himself. Um, I'm sure Klein would argue that, um, you know, as the guy finding this money and as the manager, I'm entitled to, you know, percentages and and all of that. Um, But really, the, the way these stories end tended to be with the artist not owning their stuff and Klein owning it. Mm. 
You know, right. you get it. You get a Sam Cooke compilation today. It's going to say Abco on Abco. it. Abco. Yeah. You know, you get an early animals compilation. Herman's Hermits. Right. Various of these things that he dealt with. He owns that material, and uh, the the Beatles didn't. Well, Paul didn't want right. him owning it, and I think John, George, and Ringo didn't believe that he would own it. You know, they mm. just didn't. They just didn't see it that way. Um, right. Uh, there's a, a, a great quote from Peter Asher in there that I, I don't I don't think I want to quote completely directly, but basically um, he says, you know, everyone's going to tell you that I'm a bastard, but I'm your bastard. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> but, <laughs> word in there, yeah, right. but uh, yeah. you know, and 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 basically they bought that, and Paul didn't, you know, and. Paul also, you know, there, there was the Eastman's in there, but, you know, Paul was, mm -hmm. it's not as if Paul was just pushing the Eastman's on the mm -hmm. other Beatles, you know, the Eastman's were still in the picture when um, they set up the meeting with, what was his name? Lord, uh, the, 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 Lord, the, Lord uh, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily trying to impose them on the Beatles. He didn't want Klein. Um, because mm -hmm. of what he had heard about Klein. And then in the battles that, that ensued, you have this, uh, you know, the night when they try to strong arm Paul into signing the contract. Right, right. And he won't do it. And he doesn't like what Klein has turned his friends into, you know, mm. for, and until now, you know, we, we have a quote from John Curlander, uh, EMI engineer and later producer um, talking about how, you know, any of the individual Beatles was the greatest guy. You'd have a wonderful time. Two of them together, it right. was still pretty great. Three of them together, it's a little bit dicey. And when the four mm -hmm. of them together, they were like the most horrible people in the world if you weren't one of the four. It was them <laughs> against everybody else. Well, right. now it wasn't them against everybody else. It was three of them inclined against Paul, and Paul didn't like that. Um, mm -hmm. And you can understand why. Um, and mm -hmm. then when Paul makes his announcement um, about, you know, his album coming out and, you know, whether or not the Beatles have a future, the BBC went in and interviewed Klein. And what does he say? He says, well, you know, I, I think Paul is a very sick individual. <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> not a way to foster great feeling, you know, among, among your clients. I think um, he was I think he was already off the Christmas card list by then anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean and plus I mean he ends up having to dish out money of his own right right once once Klein sues them he has to dish out money for to a person that he wanted nothing to do with and never signed as a as a manager to begin with. Right. Right. Yeah, when they finally when they finally settled, yeah, Klein got Yeah, when they finally settled, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So And then there were uh, even further lawsuits after the other three right. decided not to continue. So, right. <laughs> and, oh, and John well, admitted, you know, this doesn't get this yeah. doesn't get said very much, but John says, you know, I, I, let's just say that Paul was probably right. Probably yeah. right. <laughs> right. And that's uh, that's an interview I think John said sometime in the spring of '73, right after when this was all going on. So, yeah. not too, you know, all this is all happening during this time frame of your book. So a lot of, a lot of term, you know, you know, a lot of activity and emotion up and down for in, in a short, really in a short window of time when you think about it. Mm -hmm. right. You know, you've got the the decision to sue, and then they go through all that family, a band, uh, all that stuff, and then 
you come out of it, you know, and he ends up winning, you know, but having to go through hell to get to it. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other, from one lawsuit to another, let's talk about uh, Sir uh, Lou Grade here for a few minutes because, ah. you know, very interesting, um, you know, suit here and in, in how it ended was were very interesting as well because, you know, one, you know, you're looking at Paul and Linda McCartney now, you know, getting getting royalties for, for, for songwriting and how the how it ended i had always assumed that you know they ended it with paul agreeing to do the tv show which is not necessarily the case it ended with him signing the extension which I, with the accepted history was always that they agreed to do a tv special and we'll let we'll forgive all the songwriting but um tell us yeah. like, why that wasn't really the, that wasn't really the truth well i think uh, i think it's quite easy when you're researching this to look at what's going on in the newspapers and and you take that as the the sort of uh, accepted history. And a lot of it was, oh, Paul's agreed to do this TV special and he's going to do the Zoo Gang theme tune. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's how he settled with Sir Lou. Basically, that's how they settled the differences. But the, yeah, no, the nuts and bolts of their deal were far more complicated. Um, and you mm -hmm. can see them in the box sets that are sitting on your shelves around you still now. Mm -hmm. um, because the, the, the deal Paul agreed was that he would extend with ATV um if at the end of that term which i think is june 1980 um they uh, handed back over to him the uh, copyright to a lot of the songs he'd written during the time he was under contract with atv uh, mm. so if you look in the ram box set now for example i think atv owns half of ram paul owns the other mm. half that was a deal he did with with atv you know to uh, during the another day dispute um, okay. So are we, I mean, for Paul, really, when the Beatles lost the ownership of their own copyright, that that became you know of paramount importance to him. So when they came to the ne negotiating table and said, "Okay, extend your deal with us, um, we'll double your royalty to um, accommodate for the fact that you're now co-writing with Linda, um, and at the same time, we'll give you back you know some of the songs you've written during the time you were under contract with us." I mean, that was a deal Paul just couldn't turn down. Ah. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I mean, it, it took him 50 years to get back some of his copyrights, right. you know, some of his Beatle copyrights. And I, I think if you look in the lyrics at the back, you'll see the copyright list that some of his mm. copyrights, he, he, he does, you know, he has got back now from, or he's, or he's got co-ownership now with Sony. Um, so I think this is a, you know, it was just a great business deal for all involved, really. Um, mm -hmm. ATV and Sir Lou got Paul for another seven years and Paul got his copyrights back. So, you know, um, yeah, it was just, it would, like I say, a very good piece of business. For both so parts. they didn't really need to do the TV show. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the TV show, it's one of those things that, um, you know, Paul will only do something if he wants to do it. So mm -hmm. it's not like that they're going to say, uh, or you, you know, you must do this this TV show if you're going to sign a contract with them. Um, it's just something he wanted to do. I think at the time it was great exposure for him as as a somebody who'd who'd taken a bit of a, a, a battering in terms of PR mm -hmm. through the right. through the the Beatles kind of legal action, and also he got to put his wife on screen. And you know, Paul and Linda often talk about. Uh, when they first got together, that they should have gone on TV and done an interview with David Frost or someone like that, you know, and said, this is the wife, you know, and, and introduced mm. it to the world. And really, he got to do that through the James Paul McCartney special. Really, It was their show. It, was, it wasn't really a wing show, was it? It was more about Paul and Linda than anything else. Right. Mm -hmm. right. 
And yeah, I, I found and, some, uh, and you know, we found some great stuff about the, t- you know, in terms of the TV special. Um, I, I mean, I used to work for ITV in Leeds, and they still have the National Archive for ITV in Leeds. It's underneath where I used to work. It's this massive vault full of old uh, film cans and and Betamax tapes, whatever it, you know, Umatic tapes. Umatic tapes, yeah. And um, amazing place. And I went Mm. down there while we were researching the book and I said, you know, have you got anything from the James Paul McCartney special? Anything, you know, do do you hold on to any rushes? And uh, we had a look through the archive and all they had was uh, the the master uh, film. They had a copy of it on film. Um, which was black and white for some reason. Um, but then they also had um, the pub scene, but an extended version of it uh, on mm-hmm. film. So I, asked, I said to them, uh, you know, is there any chance you could transfer this to digital so we could, so we could watch it, you know, see if there's anything that was, was cut out. Um, and uh, I think I paid something like 300 quid or something. Anyway, and they transferred mm-hmm. this film. Yeah. And uh, we we then sat and, and synced up with the original sound. And it turned out that at the end of the pub scene, there was another one and a half minutes, but it was mute. So then we had this uh, great game of trying to work out what songs they were singing <laughs> in the pub scene that got cut out of the film. And it turned out that I think one of them was um, You'll Never Walk Alone, which is mm, sure, uh, of course. A, a big anthem for, for Liverpool supporters. But yes. of course, Paul being from a family that support Everton, I and mean, that's maybe why that, that got that got right. cut from the film. But yeah, it's it's fi- finding little things like that in the archives, you know, it brings you no end of joy. Even if that oh. film was mute, you know, we you, you're you seeing still... something that's not been seen for fifty years. You that's know? incredible. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I should say also that, you know, when when we started we were under the impression just like everybody else that uh, James Paul McCartney and zoo gang was part of the deal to get that lawsuit settled. And, you know, it's the, the research that we did showed otherwise. Right. Um, so it was, you know, we made a lot of little discoveries like that and, right. uh, you know, we right. just want to sort of sort it out and say what actually happened. And that's, yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to be the record moving forward. This will be like the ultimate, you know, final word on on, and it'll be and it's told the right way because you guys just did an awesome job of researching yeah. it, dedicating so many years of your life to getting it right because mm-hmm. it's a subject that needs to be talked about and discussed and written about the right way. Yeah, I mean, it's really easy to pass off a lot of this stuff um, and just say that's accepted history. Let's just go with that, you know. Um, you know, but then we we spoke to Sam Trust, who worked for MT, uh, MTV, worked for ATV uh, during that time, and and he gave us some clarity on on what actually happened. So you know, we 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 did get people who were who were around and involved with ATV to to corroborate those stories and, and help us out. Gotcha. Um, you guys didn't pull any. You know, you guys didn't hold back on on putting quotes in from other band members, which especially ones that aren't very, you know, favorable to to Paul, which I was really appreciated. I I think it, you really had to, you know, add that stuff just as well as the good. You know, if they didn't have something really nice to say, 
let's let's put it in there just so you you get an idea of you know where, where what they're thinking and you know they didn't like mary had a little lamb right they didn't like the james paul mccartney special they didn't like doing bruce mcmouse you know and to that i'm saying well did you not pay attention to paul and the beatles you knew he was doing this kind of stuff to begin with right <laughs> yeah, but yeah that's, you, that's a good point you know Tom. if you think you're just going to be a rock and roll band you know within the, the occasional ballad shame on you for thinking that don't you think yeah, I think I think after after give Ireland back to the Irish that Mary had a little lamb was such a curveball for the whole band, mm -hmm. really. You know, they've just put out this single that's so politically hot that it gets banned by almost every major broadcaster in Britain. And um and then if, you know, two months later, Paul says, uh, oh, our, our next single is gonna be, you know, a musical reworking of a nursery rhyme. And the sentiment behind it is beautiful. You know, it's about it, it's an ode to his daughter Mary. Um, but when you're a rock and roll band trying to make an impression on the you know the music press, uh, yeah, they they weren't particularly you know particularly yeah. happy about having to record a nursery rhyme amongst the likes of you know the Who and Zeppelin and the Stones <laughs> putting out epics at that time. And then Henry McCulloch is now oh, I'm I'm playing this. Yeah. But yeah, we, I mean, we, we went to great lengths to look around, though, at the, at the charts at the time and to see what mm -hmm. other people were doing, you know. And, and one thing Paul always says is that, you know, his, his choice of single is always motivated by what's going on at that time. Um, mm -hmm. And when, you look, when we looked at the charts, particularly in Britain, it was just full of uh, ballads and novelty songs. So you can understand why Paul would look at the charts and go, you know what, these guys are getting a number one with that song. You know, um, right. <laughs> you've got you've got bands like, you know, was it um, was it around that time that uh, Jimmy Osman had his was it Jimmy Osman or one of the Osmonds had long haired lover from Liverpool, wasn't it? And mm -hmm. you've got that kind of stuff that's riding high in the charts and getting to number one. He probably thought that Mary had a little lamb, probably had a pretty good chance of yeah like gilbert gilbert o'sullivan exactly yeah yeah and not that this was foolproof because you know he released high 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 and it got uh bbc all upset about the sort of sexual innuendo at a time when chuck berry's my dingling was number one right it's interesting stuff really interesting um and then this goes like you said you know getting the reviews he was getting for everything up to that point up to 73 you can understand why maybe he would have you know these confident issues that you that you read about throughout his his career and it's like um another quote from him is like uh, i feel like i've got so much in me i haven't even hinted at yet i just keep Keep, I'm just keeping cool and waiting for it to happen. I felt like I could make a better record than I'm making. That's just me. Uh, that's my personality. I always feel like I still haven't made the record I'm waiting to make. And then as you pointed out in the book, it's like even after Eleanor Rigby, you know, yesterday, all my love in Michelle, Sergeant Pepper, you know, he still doesn't really necessarily believe in the, in the music that he's making, which is interesting. Well, we all have insecurities and that includes yeah. him. You know, yeah, yeah. and he he was the one who thought that Revolver was all out of tune when it was finished. You know, right. <laughs> he, he has exactly. these uh, he has these little confidence issues. And um, uh, nevertheless, you know, he, he gets it together to do. I, I don't know if he had any confidence issues about putting out Mary had a little lamb. But um, mm -hmm. even with everybody telling him, you know, we really want to do this. You know, once he once he settles on something he wants to do, he's going to do it. 
Mm. Yeah, but there's a. I mean, he denied it at the time, didn't he? That 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 was a response to give Ireland back to the Irish right, band. Right. right. Yeah. But you, you you have to think that that's got that had to be him saying, "Try banning this." You know, it's a nursery yeah. rhyme. It's just that's him <laughs> sticking two fingers up to the establishment, isn't it? Really, yeah. to, right. to the BBC and and people like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I hope that that's one thing people take away from the book. Really, is 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 getting to understand uh, more of the human side of Paul and the fact that he does have insecurities and uh, you know um, confidence problems like we all do. Um, and and yeah, I, I, I'd like to think we've we've kind of you know painted quite a lot of that throughout the book. And I think, that, like you said at the top, Adrian, separating the personal life and the musical life is, is too complicated. You can't do it with McCartney because they're so intertwined because of what he goes through personally reflects the music. And whether whether, whether for good or bad, that's what happens. Yeah. And you can't you can't just write a book about sessions because of everything that goes like the context that goes into it. Yeah, it's really hard to. And we did. Trust trust me, we did. We we there's some early draft drafts we could send you and they read like oh. you know and entries from wikipedia kind of thing really it's just kind of mm. uh, the history of the song um and uh yeah so trying to tell the whole story in you know a song entry is so difficult but when you <laughs> understand the nuances of paul's life you understand you know why a song was the way it was you know maybe i'm amazed is the perfect example that was his expression of everything he was feeling at the time. I mean, it was like probably the most biographical song, you know, autobiographical song Paul's ever written. You know, he was mm. really pouring his heart out there, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But then you get other stuff that he writes that's just kind of quirky, you know, like Power Cut. He writes <laughs> <Yeah>. because... <laughs> there was a Power yeah, Cut. Yeah, there was a Power <laughs> Cut. And if, you, if, you're at, um, if you're at Wildlife, Andy, you've not quite got to the Power Cut story yet. Um, no. But... Uh, there's a great story in the book that we were told mm -hmm. um, by Denny Sywell that they were on tour and uh, they were in Manchester and the power went out in the hotel restaurant. And uh, and he, he just said this. It's like a throwaway comment. He just said, but um, Jose Feliciano said, don't worry, guys, right. we'll get you back to your room. <laughs> And I thought, is he just kind of like dropping a, a sort of blind gag there or something? Right. And, you know, is this a joke? <laughs> And and then so I, so you know being the researcher I instantly mm. went off and I looked at the um, concert billings in Manchester. Jose Feliciano was in town and staying mm -hmm. at the same hotel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it turns out that the story about Feliciano was actually a real story. Right. So now when you listen to Power Cut, you can have in the back of your mind that um, it was probably influenced by this Oops. incident they had with Jose Feliciano right. in a hotel in Manchester. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, very good. Um, I guess we can uh, shoot up to Ban on the Run here. Uh, interesting quotes from from the guys as well, particularly Lane and Sywell. Um, some of their quotes, Sywell stating that he felt the, the demos, that the rehearsals that they did were, were better than the actual finished album, which mm -hmm. I found very interesting. Um, you know, Lane saying... Well, it's more Paul and Linda's record than a, than a Wings collaboration. I was just more or less there, you know. Again, just just stuff that you know. This is stuff you read, and this is how when when people take the Wings wasn't a band, they take this and they just run with it. You know what I mean? They don't, you know. You read this book, you know, you know, 
um, then he did contribute quite a bit. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but he did contribute mm. to to the album. I mean, he can, you know, and then going forward, you know, especially with albums like London Town, he contributed a ton. Yeah, you know, I think Denny was feeling quite sore mm. um, after the Lagos sessions and didn't really know where the band was heading. I think that's maybe he said some of the maybe why he said some of those things. You know, like it's just Paul mm. and Linda's record. Because he just felt like maybe he was a session musician during those mm-hmm. Lagos sessions and not really um, contributing much. I mean, most of them were Paul's songs, obviously, with the exception mm-hmm. of uh, no, no words. words. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think? What do you point- think, Alan? I think you know, Denny was in an unusual position there because right before Band on the the, the, the Lagos sessions, um, he had a child with Jojo and Mm -hmm. there was sort of a really kind of bad scene that happens up in Scotland with, you know, she got, he had to rush her to the hospital to have the child and they left, they left everything as it was, as you would. And Paul Mm -hmm. and Linda came by and thought that they had just left and left a mess. And Denny got back and Linda and Paul sort of, you know, lay into Denny about the mess and don't really, Mm -hmm even ask about the kid and Denny Sywell hears this and he takes offense on Denny Lane's behalf. But Denny Lane is about to go record an album with Paul with one of his songs on it. You know, this Mm -hmm. is like, this is the big chance that Denny had been waiting for all this time and he wasn't going to quit wings, but he had to have been a little bit, uh, you know, sore about this, you know, on some level and uh goes to lagos and and does the sessions i mean he really is a full participant um Mm -hmm. then they get back uh and they are doing overdubs at air studios and he's maybe less of a participant i mean he's still there when they when they do jet and everything he's still Mm -hmm. doing as much as you would expect him to be doing but somehow i guess the focus seemed to have shifted towards Paul and Linda uh, and as the band, as the album came out and I guess he just felt a little bit, you know, not hard done by exactly by that, but, mm-hmm. but, but a little. Um, the other, I think the other strange thing around that time as well, Alan, if you remember all the press that happens when they put band on the run out, it's just Paul and Linda. Yeah. So mm. Paul and Linda are doing interviews on Fleet Street and then they're bouncing back to Soho Square to do interviews and it's just the two of them. You've well, seen all the photos. You've seen they're... photographs from Paul and Linda in the moon boots around that time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no Denny. So was that a choice of Denny's not to be there or was it a choice of Paul and Linda's? You know, it's a good question, that really. It's you know, hard did, to Denny, go... did Denny separate himself? You know? Yeah, but it's a good point. But it's hard to really put the band notion at that point when they, had well, yeah, them, when they were reduced to a trio. So are we really a band mm-hmm. or are we just, you know, man and wife? with another guy i could see that being a little bit you know sticky and prickly for denny to navigate and for also Mm. paul and linda to navigate well how do we market this how do we actually how are we pushing this out there you know so you know it's and then and you like that's something that's why you look at something like the cover the cover is so it has all these characters on it because Mm. what were you going to do you were going to put you know paul linda and denny on it well they did that later with london town but not then (laughs) but also if you look in the credits it's you know like Paul really wants to thank Linda. Linda really wants right. to thank Paul. And thanks, Danny. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> it, it just seems a little tossed off. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's the but it's funny because uh, but it's funny because right. Denny Lane, uh his song was obviously at the center of Henry leaving. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. which you'll find out when you read the book. I'm not gonna give too much away because right. I know people are gonna be yeah. listening to this before they've read it. Right. Um let's let's talk a little bit about Linda for a minute. She plays a very important role during this period in time, as you can as you'll read. And you know, just reading quote, quotes from Paul after meeting after meeting Linda, you know, she's a real woman, she needs to be taken seriously, she has a child, you know, and then you read the quotes about being on the farm and you know, I just can't believe you breathe this fresh air and you, you know, you plant a seed, five of them come up illegal and then, you know, and then <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, it's just totally different Paul, you know. I mean, you wouldn't hear him say these things in like say 66, you know what I mean? Linda really just changes him in a way uh you know he wants that family life i guess and and now you know he has it and mm-hmm. it's it's pretty remarkable you know the difference in his attitude you know pre pre linda and post linda yeah well i mean he found he, he found the love of his life didn't he right yeah and uh mm-hmm. you know and they they obviously clicked on lots of different levels and um right. and yeah and she and she was the one that that pulled him out of that kind of dip, deep depression he was in or you know october november 1969 and mm-hmm. and hung him on the line as, as he wrote uh, so um so yeah you know yeah Lin, linda's so central to to this whole story and um, what, really. what you don't really see a lot you guys talk about in the book the quotes from the band members linda especially in those ram sessions you know she's you know she's basically being you know like the bad cop for paul to just schedule the musicians come on in like leaving it all to her to do all that stuff to make make the phone calls and you know know, we don't want your wives here today and it's you know very much she's kind of the defender of him Mm -hmm. during this time yeah also you know uh, going through the book um i think some of the best quotes in there are from linda you know linda has a way of really sort of slicing through to the reality um, in a way that, you know, even more than Paul, Um, you know, Paul wants to present it a certain way. Linda just says what she has to say and it's, you know, not dressed up. It's not fancy. It's, but it's, you know, very sort of right on the money. Um, And I, I find, I find her quotes throughout the book really refreshing. It's that mm-hmm. it's that American perspective that probably was why you know typical versus Paul it was you know, and you know he liked that you know very blunt to the point typical American response to yeah no it's true they they're like they are like stereotypes aren't they Paul's this mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know very conservative Brit and Linda's this straight talking American yeah <laughs> yeah. Right. But no, you, you went like Tom said before um, about reading quotes from different members of the band that may not necessarily be good or bad, you know. But we we felt that that was really important with this whole story was that every it was everybody's story, you know. So they all really have to have a part in in telling the story, you know. You'll find Paul's voice throughout the whole book, but you'll also mm-hmm. find Linda's voice throughout the whole book. Um, you know, Linda talks about his depression, not just Paul. You know, so you're getting both sides of the story. That, that uh, that's possibly something that you'll take. You know, readers will take away from this book that maybe they didn't take away from, uh, right. you know, books that have, have just been solely focused on Paul's voice. 
Mm. Um, you know, is that you'll hear other people's voices in there. Um, I mean, hearing Linda's perspective on him being depressed is is just wonderful. You know, and she could have been, she could have gotten depressed as well. I mean, you look at the comments that she got, the criti criticism that she got, you know, being in the band. Uh, the one I, it's just <laughs> from Barry Coleman, no amount of kisses from the Prince will turn her into a musician. I mean, <laughs> that right there, just, Well, she wow. was getting it, she was getting it like up and down the, the line. Right. I mean, she and was from getting it members. from the critics. She was getting yeah. it sometimes from band members and she was getting it from the fans, you know, who were mm -hmm. scrolling things on the wall across from their house. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it she must have. She must have been incredibly thick-skinned to, to to put up with mm -hmm. all of that. Yeah, talk about talk about strength of character. And mm -hmm. then three years after, to be on stage in America playing and, seventy thousand people, you know, during Wings right. Over America tour. I mean, yeah, and raise a family with kids and raise a family. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> that little small part part of their life. Yeah. They actually yeah. had to manage as well too, amongst all this crap, you know, thrown her way. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly strong-willed woman, and uh, obviously, you know, benefit Paul benefited from it because he ended up, you know, getting better and better. And kind of this denouement thing that Alan talked right. about is is what mm. is what is what it's what it's, it's what his career is. And I think mm -hmm. uh, when we when we spoke to John Lackey, he he was the one that pointed this out. He said, you know, with without Linda, you know, you wouldn't have that wing sound. Right. So you know, right. that Linda's Linda's vocals, and obviously that started with Ram. But throughout the whole period of Wings, you know, without Linda's right. vocal contribution, you wouldn't have that wing sound. It's really unique. Right. Mm. A couple more things before we start winding it down here. Um, you know, the Band on the Run 25th anniversary comes out, right? It's got that second disc of, of interviews. And, and I haven't listened to it in a long time, but, you know, they get mugged, right? And it makes it sound like it's so quickly you know after they arrive they they got they they don't have the tapes anymore so they're just going by memory now In reality they had those tapes they had them for a couple of weeks while they were there so it's not like all was lost you know it wasn't was, so dire and that you know. mugging took place after what was really the last session so they mm -hmm. they didn't really need them to do any of the songs uh, yeah, uh, that that was an, one of those sort of myths that we yeah. mm -hmm. sort of managed to get through. And of course, you know, like like with um, you know the the James Paul McCartney special and Zoo Gang and the contract, right. we we thought that you know the story as we'd always read it was what mm -hmm. happened, um, but it turns out not to be. And uh, sort of overstated and not only that um the the sense that you know these are the incredible great lost band <laughs> on the run demos you know right. we can't say absolutely for certain but it's extremely likely that those were cassette dubs of the four track mm. masters which paul still has in his archives mm. so those those probably still exist and it well, it just lends itself to the theater of the whole thing, you know, yeah. to, to play it up, and you know, it it, it tells a nice story and a narrative. With yeah, the album. and that's a yeah, yeah. He likes Absolutely. to tell a good the, story. The, the, the thing does. is, to people to, to people like us, uh, these little details really matter. You, mm -hmm. you know, where an event, when an event happened, where it happened. 
Um, right. But in the grand scheme of, of the life of, of Maka, he's been doing what he does now for 60 plus years. Um, the, the timelines, they, they start to become wobbly because you, you just can't retain all that information. That's why 25, after, 25 years after they released Band on the Run, you start getting these slight discrepancies in what happened when. But um, right. But yeah, we we were able to straighten out a few of those things, and and actually, when you look at the chronology of what happened in Lagos, it makes perfect sense now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that we we all knew that um, Paul went to see Feller Feller and Cutie right. Shrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got mugged. Uh, he collapsed, mm-hmm. um, and then they then they came home, but we didn't know in what order, and we we just. Pieced it all together, presenting yeah. in the right order. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, excellent job. Um, you know, one thing that I appreciate about, you know, John did this early in his career. Paul did it quite often in the '70s. You know, was you know releasing non non album singles, and you know the then Al Corey, what vice president um, of marketing for Capital, you know, convinced him to put Helen Wheels on the the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Um, uh, album. Interesting, though, that, you know, other, other he, I mean, he, he released uh, what uh, uh, Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, right, as a single. That didn't seem to be a problem, right? I mean, what was the, the kind of thinking going on in, in the, this one? Why was this one more different than, I, I mean, I get the theory that you don't want the audience to pay twice for the same song. You know, I get that, but why the change of heart all of a sudden? Because he hadn't yet come up with the idea of putting an album out in 12 different colored vinyl versions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, buying the same song twice. Right. <laughs> and it'll take another 50 years before that happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, obviously he approached each case differently. I mean, his preference mm-hmm. at the time was to not have the singles on the album. But um, I, I think that uh, with something like Admiral Halsey and also My Love, um, the idea of releasing it as, sing- as a single came after the album was done. Yeah, good point. And, uh, right. <clears throat> you know, I mean, I could say, well, you know, the album was done. He didn't have other tracks he could put out as a single. But of course, in the case of Ram, that's totally not true. He didn't have to put out on Uncle Albert. He could have put out, there were mm-hmm. tons of outtakes. from Little that. Woman Love, yeah. right? I mean, well, that was a proposed single too, right? Little Woman Love backed with uh, Get On The Right Thing. Yeah. yeah, he probably he probably took advice from uh, Capital. You know, they they get sure. advice from radio stations who say, you know what, what we've been playing, Uncle Albert has mm-hmm. been really well received, so he puts it out as a single. In in every case, there it's just a case of uh, trying to extend the life of an album. So he right. puts out mm-hmm. Admiral Halsey in or was it August, um, and and that's kind of four months after the album came out so mm-hmm. and the same thing happened obviously with uh, band on the run on you know he then starts putting lots of singles out off the album to extend the life of the album and it ends mm. up topping the american charts was it two or three times so and right does so well that he doesn't actually have to actually put a proper album out in the next year because he rides mm. the wave of success because the album comes out in december of the previous mm. year mm-hmm. <laughs> although you'll find out in our next book that they there was a plan to put out another album um mm-hmm. which Chicken. which you knew which was obviously going to be hot hits cold cuts with cold two cuts, Zs right. and two k's um well and two and a half albums a, in a way you know not including the year you know <laughs> yeah that's right yeah yeah 
so that so that that was going to be kind of his way of um keeping his record labels happy in 74 uh, but in the end because they started recording venus and mars at the end of 74 the idea of hot hits cold cuts all of a sudden just went away um as a mm. you know because because it was never it was never deemed a commercially viable album by capital anyway hot hits cold cuts mm. so mm. okay Gotcha. I'm, well, I'm still, uh, I'm still hoping that we all get a nice 12 inch copy of that though through our letterbox with our um, singles box in December. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, unfortunately the the date has has moved for they pushed it back a week, so we'll have to wait an, another, another week to, to another get our set. So. Unfortunately, pushed yeah. Pushed back to the ninth. So yeah. did you guys did you guys that's... buy it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. The the only downside of being a McCartney uh, writer is that you have to buy you have to buy everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But if these have things are tax yeah. deductible, what is? <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 I mean, we could talk about that for an hour, but uh, I mean, because, you know, there's some stuff missing and, and the theory of, you know, why put this single and not that single, you know, it, it's it, it's definitely interesting, the thought process that goes on with with these releases and the fact that, you know, we're never satisfied, right? We, we, we got yeah. this beautiful box with all these singles. But yet we want back to the egg in London instead, you know. But but I'm I'm happy for anything, you know. And yeah, I, I think it's I think it's the idea that you know we we know we've already got that stuff, and what we right. want is something new. Yeah, we right. want to hear some outtakes from London Town or from Back oh, to the Egg or something like that. Right. Yeah, and they're great those archive box sets. They do such a great job of putting them together. You know, they're, they're beautifully packaged, so many great photographs and, um, you know, bits and pieces inside every one of them. Um, right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that they've uh, slowed down the production of the archive sets because they're doing such a great job with them. Right. But Absolutely. Hopefully next year. Okay. So we got uh, book one coming out here. We're recording this. Uh, what's the date today? Uh, this is 27th. Uh, 27th so we got still got a couple weeks before the book comes out you know i gotta ask you know how's how's book two coming along and when 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 would we expect i mean obviously i don't think it's gonna we're gonna have to wait lewis and you know in lewis and years but uh you know adrian <laughs> you guys that's a big, no not, not that long no, no. <laughs> well we're not, we, not giving that much of my the, life away yeah yeah right. well i mean we're, we're obviously uh, bound by our our contract and you know when we when we're supposed to deliver things obviously well, mark, he was too, wasn't mark he? Lewison was bound by contract as well yeah um <laughs> but yeah and uh, no we're, we're still we're still working on book two um mm -hmm. how are we getting on alan <laughs> we're sort of still in the early part of book two um okay right now it's coming together still mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. getting through that and um yeah. Yeah, it's coming it's coming together. You know, the, the I, whole uh, all all the research is in place. We just need to finish writing it now. So you know, there's I, also also a problem that we we have with this book that we didn't have with the first book is that um you know, we have to promote the first book. So apart from doing interviews, we're constantly dealing with our publisher and answering questions mm -hmm. for them and putting together, you know, they'll do uh, QA interviews for the press kid and mm. and all kinds of stuff that we have to do and all of that is time that we're not spending working on the book writing. You, so, you, right. mean, you, you mean you didn't come up with a self questionnaire to put in the book to, to sell out <laughs> everybody? 
it's funny. They have it's one funny. in the press kit. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, yeah. We actually, Adrian said when they sent us the questions, he said, why, why don't we just put Paul's answers? From <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. Can I uh, you, quick, can I ask the time frame for book number two, or do you not want to divulge just yet? Yeah, I, I, I think ballpark it will be uh, fall 2024, I would have thought. Okay. No, I meant the years, the years oh, the of year, research. Right. Um, yeah, no, there will be 74 through to uh, 80, but we won't okay. tell you when in 80. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, you know, I would, I would figure you would have just ended it at, you know, December 31st of, of uh, 79, but you know, it's fine with me, you know, more info, the more info you can squeeze in the book, the, the, the happier <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be. So you guys are just contracted are right. Just to do the two books as of now, right? As of now, I mean, they want to see how these two do before they mm. um, unleash us on the rest. Our intention is to do the whole thing. So, uh, you know, we, we feel that uh, there are enough people out there who really want to read what actually happened in Paul's career yes. that uh, the public <clears throat> will find that encouraging and mm -hmm. uh, we'll continue on. That's the, the, that's, the difficult. That's awesome. That's a difficult balance you have to strike with these books because, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you want to give the fans out there everything, you know. And Alan said mm -hmm. we did some edits. We didn't do really many edits, did we, Alan, mm -hmm. if we're honest? I mean, we did some edits, but not many. But we, we had to deliver a book to uh, Day Street that was commercial, mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. that is but at the same time still delivered on what we want to do with this series, which is provide great detail. Um but yeah, when they saw the word count, I'm guessing that they were pretty surprised considering it was probably three times what we were contracted for or something like that. Mm. It was quite a lot. Yeah. Well, um, we did, there was this big section of 20,000 words that cut, cut out. And then as we went through it, we replaced it with another 20,000 words. <laughs> So. Yeah, yeah. We 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 just to, to clarify, we were asked to just make some trims in the early story, the Beatle period, mm. because right. our publisher felt that this is a story that's been told over and over again. We don't need to give mm. this amount of detail. And in retrospect, our editor was probably right. So you're not you're not missing anything really uh, of, mm. of of what was trimmed out. Um, right. But yeah, like you said, I mean, the the bottom line is that the the way we see this series is that. You know, in 500 years from now, when all of us guys are six feet under, people are still going to be talking about Paul McCartney. Uh, and, and, and it's great to think that uh, historians will be able to walk into a library and pluck our volumes off a bookshelf and yep. they'll be able to read about this great man's right. life, you know. And then and, told, um, told the correct way. Yeah, yeah. and told, told objectively and told in detail. Yes, and, yes. You know, objectively. I mean, yeah. And um, yeah, and, and like you say, we, we feel like, yeah, that, that this series is kind of our legacy, I suppose, mm -hmm. as well as as well as Paul's, you know, is 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 to, is to tell his story. Um, you know, right. the the greatest musician, singer, songwriter of the 2020, 21st century. So, yeah. Um, and it will. And the book, the, it, the book will be its own legacy because it reads. Well, it's not like a, just a Wikipedia article. You read, you've got the session information and the way you formatted the book to just spotlight the recording sessions, but also along the text and the narrative of Paul's life is why this book is going to be successful. So, and it reads so well that way. And, right. and just kudos Agreed. to you guys. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, 
I wish we had a copy to hold up, a physical copy. Um, this is what, well, yeah, right. This is what, yeah, this is what my co-host, this is my buddy did here. He, he, <laughs> but that's that's awesome. But anyways, this for me, this is this is the gold standard. Um, this is, I, I think, everybody else that's writing McCarty books can stop now. You know, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, no, this I this was thoroughly one of the the best things I've read, you know, in the McCartney canon. And I cannot wait for, for volume two and looking forward to hopefully you guys can just tell the complete story. That would be wonderful. I want to thank you guys. I can't thank you guys enough. I can't tell you how long I've been looking forward to this. I mean, this ever since you guys announced this really is you put that YouTube page up and what back in uh, 16 or something like that. Yeah. Um, long time ago. You know, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And it's just, just you know, you know, reaching out to you guys and getting little nuggets here and there. It's just the excitement level has had just been elevating, you know, year after year after year. So finally here, a couple weeks away till we finally get the physical copy. Uh, as we're recording this, you know, when this is, comes out, hopefully you'll have a copy, or hopefully you'll have pre-ordered it, and we, we'll we'll be getting yep. it soon. Alan, Adrian, thank you so much. This was this was real a treat. quick. Let's yeah, just talk ahead. upcoming some press, some press. Uh... Press launch. Oh, stuff. yes. That's the guys at Newark, right? Yeah. You guys will be in appearing in Newark in a few weeks, correct? That's right. Yeah. At yeah. The Grammy Museum mm. with Ken Womack. Yes. Great. And, yeah. Uh, we, we, we were invited over by Ken uh, to do mm. a, I think we're going to be doing a little QA with Ken and a book signing. Um, but I'm, I'm just coming over to New York for the pancakes mainly. <laughs> and the pizza. And the pizza. Oh, there you go. Well, you know, Adrian, I'll show you where to get some good pizza around. Good, here. good man. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I'm looking so, forward. We should give the date and everything. That's December fourteenth. Yes. Is the Grammy Museum uh, event, and I think it's at seven or seven thirty. Yes. Or seven, you won't be late. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And okay. I'm looking, I will be there, and I'm looking forward to uh, meeting you guys in the flesh. Great. Yeah, likewise. And having a chat. Yeah. Okay, so. excellent. And there you have it, folks. Um, two of the best, you know, the two of the best that have really focused and written uh, a work uh, of art that is going to last for the test of all the test of time. And as you heard them right. say, there was never really a, a singular work focused with this much attention to detail to Paul McCartney's solo career. And they have delivered the goods, folks. Uh, you know, Alan, Alan Cozen and Adrian Sinclair are just two fine gentlemen um that collaborated on this and uh have given us just a, a joy of a book and as you heard them say volume uh, the second volume is already being worked on so mm -hmm. it, it's uh, it'll, it'll be a lot quicker than you know tune in as well so uh we, we had a blast so we talking to them. yeah we had a blast talking yeah. to them and tom you did a good job uh, organizing it yeah um andy it's it's it was a really amazing uh, you know, going through this book, uh, I know as we're recording this right now, you're still, you know, going through it. Um, you know, I, I was able to finish it. Uh, I put my wife to the side and I said, look, I got <laughs> you're, you're, you're secondary right now. So I got to finish this, this book comes first. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like you said, the attention to detail, um, a lot of the myth busting, you know, we, we, we talked about a couple of them, uh, here, uh, in this interview, there's, there's more, uh, you know, again, you know, live and let die, uh, stuff in there that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they, 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 you know, busted a myth on that one. Uh, so I'm hoping everybody, you know, that's, it doesn't matter your level of fandom uh, for this. It, it reads per. It reads well, like you like you stated, Andy, in 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 the interview. Um, 
so and it's a quick read in my opinion it's an easy read uh, i didn't reads, have, you know this, yeah. it's not a it's not a it's not a wikipedia entry of the book of sessions it right. reads mm -hmm. as a biography with with you know with like with attention to detail to the sessions so when you guys right. see the book they're like when there's a recording session they have it they have it formatted okay this is there was a recording session on this date but you're reading about paul's life and as they explained in the interview separating mm -hmm. paul's personal life from musical life was impossible to do and when you read the mccartney legacy you'll understand why because everything mm -hmm. that paul went through personally with his wife and his kids and his family impacted what he did musically and that's what show, that's what comes through the book loud and clear mm -hmm. so Good point yeah so i hope you enjoyed the interview please let us know in the comments what you thought let us know if you're getting the book if you got the book already or if you i'm sorry if you pre-ordered the book already and uh if you're looking forward to it this is uh, this was a great time uh with the with uh, adrian and alan so yes it was so you can yeah. find us at uh, two legs podcast on facebook twitter and instagram we're also on youtube obviously as well we're almost at 1300 subs actually believe it or not we're getting close to yeah. 1300 subscribers so Make sure you subscribe to our channel as well. And that's also we're on every audio platform as well for a traditional podcast as well. So that's going to do it for episode 188. We are getting closer to Chrissy. So enjoy, enjoy the holiday season and uh, we'll see you next it's time. The holiday season. season. There we go. <laughs> we'll see you next yeah. time, everybody. Thank you. Hosted by Tom Hanyadi and Andy Nichols, with musical contributions by Dylan.